It goes downhill from here. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's the show for today, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the Aviation RC New Podcast. You found us. My name is Joe. And I'm Matt. We're here to be with you along your journey and to share our experiences in RC Aviation. If you have any questions, thoughts, or want to share a flight story, hit us up at aviationrcnoob at gmail.com. Now, buckle in. Let's take off. And we're back. This is episode 28. Today we'll be talking about modern trainers, a continuation of our trainers uh, conversation series. And just preface a little bit, if uh, Matthew and I seem a little extra giggly uh, this episode, (laughs) we've been been hanging out for about two hours before we ever got started (laughs) really recording. (laughs) Just Uh, having a good time. So Yeah, we've been talking about everything under the sun and back again. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. All good stuff. And it's also starting to get late at this point. So this is when the the giggles come in. Hopefully you'll have as much fun as we do. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So we're, yeah, we're going to talk about the trainers, right? And we're going to talk about what we've been doing in the last couple of weeks. Um, By the time this gets released, we'll have had a build night. Uh, Hopefully you came out and joined us on Discord, right? Um, Other than that, I mean, my thought is let's just get in it. Yeah, what do you say, um, I'm good with that. I can go ahead and then uh, with my what I've been doing because I've not had time. Okay. I know it's yeah. becoming sort of my my go to statement at this point. Well, um, not, like you've had a lot of big projects, and uh, this past week you've you've the past couple weeks you've had some things that are extraordinary. So yeah. let's get yeah talk about it. Well, it's part of the hobby, so man. It it's, it is it is it's part of life. Um, so without going too deep into it, um. You know, my wife's back went out on her uh, mm. last weekend. Um, yeah. So I've been home and kind of trying to take care of her and take care of that, which would have been, mm. you know, prime opportunity to uh, to do some stuff. But also uh, a bit of a funk kicks in when, you're, when your better half is not feeling great. So, yeah, man. Um, but been taking care of her and, you know, that's that's been nice. Um just be able to yeah. be home a few extra days with her and so but uh things that i have been working on um i i've not so i've ordered a battery charger and batteries so i can uh when i get them in i can finish the last little bit of work on the corsair and get it in the air yeah for its maiden but again i i didn't have a battery charger so i'm waiting for that to come in then i'll be able to hopefully um put the power pod into the Corsair, balance it out, make sure all the electronics are working properly, and then get that in the air. Wait, how, how long how long do I have to build the Corsair? What, to maiden it at the same time as me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, a couple days. So, <laughs> I mean, that's if I get out to fly it this weekend. <laughs> um, okay, good. No, that's good. I'm, I'm kidding around, honestly. But, nah, you're good. But that's pretty exciting. Uh, I'm excited for you to be able to get that. Um, I mean, up in the air and give it a try. Yeah, and truthfully, as fast as you build, you probably could have one knocked out in time. I, I could have put my mind to it. Um, problem is, is I like to squirrel, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so 
once I can get the battery charger here and uh, I ordered two four cell batteries, I'll be able to put the power pod in and uh, get everything balanced out, make sure all the electronics are, are set up correctly because I got the elevator and nailer on uh, elevator and a rudder fixed. I talked about nice. that last time. So yeah, yeah. I'll be able to get it in the air. Um, I've had the Depron wing out there in the garage. Yeah, I saw that. So I've gone in and not done a ton with it, but um, figured out where I wanted to put the the um, uh, Elevon servos for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've kind of I've already cut the holes for them size to the servos. I didn't want to glue them in yet because I want to uh, skin the plane before I put yeah. mount those in. And um, what do you mean by skin? Are you, are you using just like putting the Depron skin over top of and closing it up? Or are you talking about like putting, um, uh, coloring or, uh, paper skin or something? I'm putting some, uh, basically metallic tape or aluminum tape on it. Oh. Um, and this goes back to the bedroom project. I thought I was going to need a lot more of that aluminum tape used to put the underlay down or to join oh, okay. the underlay. So yeah. I bought like five rolls of the tape and I used less than one roll. So I've got all oh. this <laughs> silver <laughs> aluminum tape in the garage. As oh, a, you know what? I'll use it as a covering. Uh, so I've been, <laughs> I put a, a few strips on the, uh, the wing so far working on doing the cover. Um, and I, I, uh, taped and covered one of the, uh, vertical fins that are on it. So I still got to do another one and then I got to put all the tape elsewhere nice. and then I can, uh, get servos mounted. And I know I'm going to have to run, um, I want to cut servo leads or servo extensions, yeah. uh, for the wing. Cause of how far out I put those, those servos. So I get to look mm-hmm. forward to finally crimping my own servo extenders. Ooh. Yeah. 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 Um, and figuring that I'm rather run all those wires ex- externally, I've figured out, you know, I've cut holes for the servos, but my wing is thin enough that the servo goes all the way through. Um, yeah. I made a real low profile on that wing shape. That's, so sounds like it. That's <laughs> so right. It'll I'll, plug uh, in. I'll put the servo through and then the wire will run under the wing a couple inches and I'll have another hole where the servo lead will go through. Okay, um, like an access panel kind of deal. Yeah, and I'll, I'll kind of wall fish it. Um, yeah. Poor term, but appropriate. It is. I'll wall fish it through uh, through the the body to the central uh, to the center where I'll have another hole that'll bring it down into the power pod. That sounds good. So, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of where I've been on that. Um, my my only my only advice on that, based on my experience so far with that. Now, this is the Depron one, right? Yes. Are you stiffening uh, the body up or the control surfaces at all? I am. So I, I have. Okay. I, I meant to mention I did skin one of the um, one of the Elevons, and before I skinned it, I took. Uh, I was hoping one barbecue skewer would be long enough, but it wasn't. Uh, so yeah. I took two barbecue skewers, and I've hot glued those to the top of the. Okay. Good. And I mean, the one might still be enough to stiffen it where you wouldn't notice any mm-hmm. deflection from whatever's left. I just know that um, that was something that I noticed when I built mine. And again, I didn't use any stiffeners at all. And I, I knew that that would be potentially a problem. Yeah. You know, and I'm glad that what I did can help help inform you about how you build yours because I really enjoyed 
the the flight characteristics. I, I enjoyed the the Depron model, putting it together, all that stuff. Um, and I think if I had built in a little bit of stiffening, um, I'd still be flying it right now. Um, but I haven't gotten back to it to do what you're doing, which is you know adding the barbecue screws in the right spots. Right. I don't expect to be able to pull like serious maneuvers with this one, largely because I. I didn't do a lot of internal stiffening, so I don't expect it to to handle extreme bank and yank real well. Like I don't, I sure you, you know, don't I need didn't. you don't need it to. But it's um yeah, I'm I'm putting barbecue skewers on on the elevons, and so I've glued okay. them down, and then I'm laying my my aluminum tape on top of and under that control surface. So like basically topping and bottom, it's just going to be silver sheeted. Okay. Um, Good. Uh, on the top. And we'll get into my experience with the Prandtl wing. Um, I recommend that you have some compression members on the top. Okay, define that. Uh, basically, again, a barbecue skewer across the the center ten inches or whatever okay. it is uh, uh, above the spar. So that way, when the spar tends to flex inward on a high G maneuver, that fall that the plane in half. That right, it will fold the plane in half if you don't have something to basically absorb that energy mm -hmm. there, and you just put it over top of the spar and and dig it in and and glue it just okay, and you you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Just I didn't do that on the Depron wing, and I didn't notice a big issue with the Depron, but I did notice that if I did a couple high G maneuvers, I could have an issue. The Prandtl D did have. A similar kind of issue and it's mm -hmm. the same kind of deal not enough reinforcing in the right spots top and bottom of the spar near the center is really where you need it mm -hmm. all right go ahead go finish up i'm sorry um well that's about what i got there um okay now this weekend my i had a great great uncle one great mm -hmm. uh it was my grandfather's brother um that'd be your great uncle yeah yeah, he was in town from way up north. I only could see him once every couple of years, and he, he wanted to come by and see me. So my parents brought him by, and they happened to have my cousin's uh, son with him. So oh, uh, cool. my, uh, what, I don't know what you call your cousin's ne son. Nephew, second nephew once removed? I don't know. Uh, something. So he was there, and like he's like eight or ten. And okay. then my, my grandfather's brother, so he's like, you know, 80-something. Uh, and both of them... Uh, yeah, I was working out in the garage and they saw that I had the planes out there in various, you know, uh, stages of completion. So, um, I got to stand there and talk to them about them a little bit and, uh, cool. seeing a little Jack, who's my cousin's son, um, you know, leaping to conclusions and trying to understand how like what the planes were doing and how the control surfaces and i was explaining what they were doing and so he's very rapidly like trying to tell me what they're doing in response and how it works yeah. and, okay well yeah almost but you know not quite <laughs> it's not the ones on the wings that are causing it to go up and down that's the one on the tail the wings roll it side to side and right just, yeah cool you know explaining and and having that with him and i don't know maybe Maybe I'll be able to take him out and have him on the buddy box sometime. He seemed interested. Yeah. You know, and then just, uh, you know, my, my great uncle who is aware of the balsa side of the hobby, 
uh, from you know when he yeah, saw the stuff years ago. But he he never did anything with it. But just him seeing what I was working on and you know his interest and he was nice. largely quiet but also interested. It, it was just good to to share the hobby a little bit, even if I didn't have anything to fly at the moment. Yeah, it it definitely is one of those things when people who you didn't expect to have an interest kind of come by and say, Oh, what's that? And they, they are genuinely interested in, in what the kind of nonsense we do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun to be able to share it. Yeah. Nice. That um, sounds like a good time. It, it was. So what have you been working on? Me? Uh, I've been busy with probably, uh, four, four projects. The J 1000, I did a little bit with the servos to kind of get it ready to be able to, um, I'm kind of, I don't know. I I'm, I'm kind of holding back a minute as I try to figure out what I'm, how I'm going to mount the, the, um, the motors. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'm still working on that. I realized, uh, I need to put some sort of trussing. So some sort of triangles, uh, in the front shoes for lack of a better way to pontoons, I guess. Okay. Um, to make sure that they're a lot stiffer because when when it goes wrong, it noses in hard and those shoes or those boats take the impact completely. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make them stiffer so that at least it has a chance to get into the air before that damages so much that it destroys the flight characteristics of the flying elevator uh, in the front. So uh, I'm still I'm more doing a lot of mental work on that than physical work on that project, but I plan on getting back to that. Uh, in the meantime, um, for the last couple of weeks, since our talk with Red Jensen, I told you I was pretty inspired, and I was able to put together my modified Prandtl uh, D wing. So basically using the Prandtl D principles and cross sections and twists and all that kind of stuff to create a, a less swept, um, straighter kind of a plank style wing. Okay. Um, and I was able to send it into the air at least twice since then. Um, and it, that was not necessarily an easy journey because it didn't just leave the hand and go. Um, but when it did get in the air, it I mean, it, to me, it was majestic. It was like controlling a bird. It was like flying a bird. Um, the, the project displayed the Prover Shaw tendencies that we talked about the the point of designing that prandtl d was to couple couple the roll with the positive yaw um in in the prover shaw situation as well as and i don't know how if it was the most efficient wing you know with the constant uh the minimal drag design right. um and i imagine so it may not have been like optimal but i was using a um, a quadcopter motor um, on a three cell battery. It was a, I think a 17, uh, 1700 KV 22 or 2306 quadcopter motor with a five by three by five blade. Uh, actually, no, I ended up changing it to a six by four, but both of them work um, and really just two servos and a, a lot of weight up front. I had a 2200 uh, milliamp three cell battery up front, as well as a 1300 three cell for ballast. 
Mm-hmm. And those were sticking off the front of the nose. So they were pretty <laughs> far forward. Um, they were like half on <laughs> both Jeez. of them. Uh, but once I got it in the air, I mean, it flew beautifully. Um, and it flew pretty level. And I was worried. Like, as I'm flying around, I figure worst comes to worst, I can bank and yank it like a regular flying wing. Um, but this, you just turned, a, rolled a little bit. And it it would start to bring the outside wing around on its own. So it was doing the Prover Shaw. And then I was worried that as we, as it flies around, and I, again, I flew it around for, I think, about seven or eight minutes on a, the 2200 milliamp battery, which is about right. Um, and I, honestly, it seemed like it was a little bit longer than I um, was thinking would, it would be up there. And right. I didn't really drain a ton of the battery either. You know, I, I just used a little bit of the battery. I think it, when it came down, it was like 3.8 um, from full charge. So yeah. I kind of used like half the battery. Um, and when I came down, I was worried that as I came in, I wouldn't be able to yaw because it would be too low. I'd dip a wing and it would it would strike the ground. And then, of course, you know, what kind of landing is that? Well, what I found was just a little bit of yaw, uh, a little bit of roll would correct the yaw. So you could basically wiggle down the field by just slight movements. And at no, because there's a, I think a six or eight degree um, up, upward angle from the ground, okay. you know, like each side is lifted up a little bit okay. um, to cre- create a dihedral. Um, because when the one wing would start to turn flat, it would already be doing its jawing action. So at no point while I was trying to bring it down was it in real danger of striking the ground because there was enough yawing, proverse yawing action to correct for any kind of side slip or anything. And, of course, it has no tail, so you're not really getting any cross breeze while you're landing because it's there's there's nothing to catch the wind. Right. It's just the wing. And, and honestly, that was honestly one of the hardest parts is as it got out further, it turned into a sliver. It was literally just a, you're watching a line if you could find it. And it was more I was waiting for the for the craft to kind of turn a little bit so I could get more of a, a plan view look on it. And I was like, oh, there it is. And then, I, you know, the bottom was had no blue and the top had blue. So if I could see blue and red, I was like, oh, OK, I'm seeing the top. And if it was just like a dark with a couple patterns, like, oh, OK, that must be the bottom. Um <clears throat> So that was that was majestic. Honestly, it was an incredible experience to one see if the thing worked, build it, and it was super quick and easy to build. Have it fly and have it exhibit the flight tendencies that I was hoping it would, but had no idea. And I don't know that Red knew if it would. I think he had a good idea. Like it he'd probably work. Yeah. Um, but it, it was really just exciting to kind of see that. Um, come from inspiration idea right before we talked to him to a full success uh, in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, you've been kind of on and off working on that Prandtl design for, mm-hmm. I mean, really before I was able to get into the hobby. So yeah, uh, about a couple, was it a couple years or a year? Uh, probably a couple years before you is when I started it. Um, and I designed the one and I, w- you know, I had thrown it and 
it I knew it would fly, but I when I put the motor on it, um, I just picked the wrong day, and was stubbornly perseverant, I guess, and uh, you know I couldn't get out there and test if it worked because that that model might actually still work, and I, I plan on getting back to that eventually. But yeah, I've been working at this for a while. It's been something that captured my um, my imagination and my mind's eye of like. I think I could do this cheaply and easily that anybody could try this mm-hmm. and not need a 3d printer or anything like that. And that's the other thing is you can, you can download and print a 3d printed version of it, which is awesome. Um, and you could build a balsa version, which is relatively simple and easy. The AMA website has all the information you need, but I was thinking, well, foam board is even quicker and easier if we can get this to work. Right. Um, and, I did, which is awesome. Makes me really happy. I was super ecstatic. I've got a couple videos. Um, I guess we can link them in the the description if you want to go check them out. I I would love you to because if you find the idea fascinating like I do, I think you might enjoy the videos. Um, uh, I flew the FT Duster a couple times and just had a good time cruising around the sky. Um, definitely did a little bit of that, and then and over the last week. Um, there are two things that um, one of our well, you we've talked to him, Chris McCallum. Um, mm-hmm. He is the kind of guy who comes up with an idea and builds it that night and flies it the next day. <laughs> <laughs> like if I think I'm fast at building, Joe, or if you think I'm fast at building, like Chris, Chris has got me beat hands down. Um, anyway, he came up with a couple of ideas that he tested and looked really good, and he wanted. I offered for. Because they looked really fun, um, I'd asked if he wanted help like building plans. Because I know he'll basically do it and just say, I don't have any plans. Okay, you know, yeah. I'm like, I no. flew it, I built it, it's done. Yeah, it's cool, <laughs> we're good. And they were like, well, how'd you do that? And everybody's like, give me some plans. And I'm like, Chris, dude, you, you need take pictures of this stuff as you go, okay? As you cut them out, put a ruler next to it and just take pictures. Send them to me and I'll I'll make you some plans. And then so... After I made the plans for him, it didn't take me long. It's kind of what I do. Uh, I used to draft before I became an engineer, and as an engineer, I draft often. So it, to me, it's it's easy and quick. So I took his plans. I beta built it to make sure that the build process went the way it's supposed to uh, and everything kind of fit properly. Um, so we did that. And so he built a jet for a 50-millimeter EDF, um, he called it Project X. I, he'll probably call it something different when it's all said and done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I built that because I had an extra, I had an, a 50 millimeter EDF just kind of sitting there waiting for a project. Uh, and then uh, the the Reptile Dragon, so the Reptile is a brand, um, Dragon is a kind of a FPV platform plane. It's like a twin twin tractor high wing kind of plane you put a camera on it and you fly it around for a while they made a lot of revisions um so they made a second release it has a two types of tails a t-tail and a v-tail and so chris looked at this thing and went are you kidding me why would you pay that money when five bucks gets you the model like you can build one yourself it's really easy mm-hmm. and he's been messing around with the kf uh the klein fogelman type wings which is literally like you make your profile and cut that in half and you put another, put that on top yeah, and the front. And now you have your wing done. 
Um, and you stiffen it up with some like carbon fiber arrow shaft or a big skewer or something like that. And he puts it on this like little pod with the T-tail on the back. It's, it's really straightforward. Very simple, very easy. He busted out those plans faster than I can say lickety split. Um, I mean, he had it built and done. I'm like, dude, that, that looks really close. And it looks like it would fly very similarly. And of course, his video showed that it flew well. I was like, all right, well, uh, I helped him out with plans. So I built one. I've got it in the background here. Joe can see what I've done with it. Yeah. Um, and over the last week, I've put it up in the air. And um, it was. Uh, I'm putting together the video now. Uh, it was incredibly touchy. All I can say is it doesn't need much as far as throws, especially in the elevator <laughs> for controls. I, I'm sitting there. I'm like, did I? At first, I put the CG too far back. So it was really touchy to begin with. Like it was, it was the kind like, you know how they say, if your CG's too far back, you'll probably only fly it once. Yeah. Um, and it's because basically every time you correct, it's going the opposite direction in a bad way. And then you correct to fix that. And now it's going the wrong way, the other way. So I was basically doing a, it was a roller coaster ride. The first, the first attempt, you know, for mm -hmm. the first minute or so, as I tried to bring it around the field, I, I did bring it home. I did fix the CG up a little bit further, further for, and I was like, okay, but I think this is it. I threw it and it still had some of those tendencies, but it was a little bit better. I'm like, you know what? Let me bring it in one last time. And I pulled the battery even further forward. Um, and then I don't know why, but I wasn't really paying too close attention to the CG. I was like, yeah, it's close. You know, um, Chris marked the points, you know, he told me where it was. And I just, I don't know the first time, apparently I just didn't even think about it. I was too excited because it was done. I want to see if it flew. <laughs> uh, my downfall, right? Um, so uh, then I flew it again, and it actually flew really well. Again, very touchy still, but um, at a constant throttle, you could just cruise around. And so cruise around I did. Um, and I tried with the jet. Uh, the jet I also flew, and I couldn't get on the sticks fast enough and it kind of rolled and turned to left into the ground. And that was two seconds of flight that, uh, but the damage, it was a sturdy build. So I was able to, you know, glue it back together. Next day I flew it. It went pretty well. I was bringing it around for that first turn to bring it, bring it back towards me, like in over the wheat. Right. And uh, I was just trying to see how far off the trim needed to be. And as I let go, it started to nose down. Apparently, it was way off trim. <laughs> I needed I needed more reflex than I thought I did um, to have it fly well. And I was like, oh, shoot. And it went into the wheat. And the wheat saved most of it, but it had done enough damage where I had to bring it home and once again, glue it back. Um, but the third one, uh, I did get up into the air. I, I double-checked the CG. I actually put it a little bit further back. So we have a servo spot. And I found that it was about the CG worked well for me about midway on the on the servos. We threw it in the air and I was able to get a couple really good like circuits. Honestly, it was about a minute and a half and which is about about half as long of a flight as you're ever going to get on an EDF. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I had a tail surface um, kind of either give out or something and it kind of, you know, twirled back into the ground and it hit like dead nose first. And I was like, ah, it's Ow. not going to make it. Yeah. EDF came loose and like a bunch of other things. I was like, Oh boy. Um, but it flew, it was a lot of fun to fly. 
like it'd make it a ton of whooshing noises and it was <laughs> it was fast and yet it was easy to control for the most part. And so I think the culprit on that build, uh, I think I want to build it again. Um, I'm going to use different control rods. I'm using like real thin. Um, it, it's got more flex in it than I should have uh, been okay with, I think. Right. And I think that was probably the culprit on this one. It needed sturdier control arms. So no big deal. Um, but I built, built and flew those two. Oh, and then I went back to the reptile, uh, the reptile dragon two. Uh, the foam board version. Um, and because it flew generally pretty well at like 50% throttle, just kind of set it and forget it. I have, I, I ordered this really big battery because I ended up ordering the, the real version, right? The foam board version. So I decided to do an endurance test because the whole point of these platforms of both the uh, Ichin, uh Banggood was, um, had a big sale on it. So I ordered the official one. It was like a hundred dollars off. So okay. Like, uh, okay. Plus I wanted to see what the differences were. So I grabbed the two. Um, I still haven't built the, uh, the official one, but I ordered batteries to go with it. And we're talking like five milliamp batteries, which are really big, especially for effectively F prop, uh, F pack style, uh, propulsion. Okay. So two quad motors basically. Um, so it was a five milliamp hour three cell battery. It uh, it's got a very wide shallow fuse, so it just fit in there perfectly. Hold on, so now. I set five it up to, milliamp or five hundred? F- sorry, five amp hour. So that's five thousand okay. milliamp hour. Wow. Okay. Whole so different ball game. Go ahead. Yeah, whole different <laughs> ball game. I'm sitting there like this thing's kind of heavy, and and when it weighs in, I think it's just just over a kilogram, but the thrust is. The thrust is like two kilograms of thrust when you put it up to full, right? Right on a on a three cell. I'm like, or yeah, about that. I was like, wow, uh, it, technically it should work, you know. So I threw it, and sure enough, it flew no problem. I had that thing flying around the sky at fifty percent throttle, really not doing much, but kind of turning it a little bit here and there, um, and not doing anything crazy, just sort of puttering around the sky. It was a light breeze day. It lasted 40 minutes. Good. At least. I don't I, I don't know exactly because the battery went out on my phone. <laughs> and I was <laughs> and so the video goes up to 35 or 32 minutes. And I'm thinking, I'm like, I remember when that guy, I had a, a guy visit the field and he's like, Hey, you mind if I come out there and, and chat with you while you're doing that? I'm like, no, please. I'm gonna be here a while, right? Um, so I remember when he came out, it was about the midway. And in the video, he comes out at 20 minutes. He comes okay. out and stands next to me at 20 minutes. So um, I'm thinking it was about a good 40 minutes, which means that setup is worthwhile to have FPV if you just want to tool around and just relax and have a good time. Um, get long-range FPV, long-range um, radio setup. And you can go just tool around and have a, a good, relaxing, you know, ride in the sky, basically. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the intent with this. And I want to compare the two between the official model, the the official release, and then this foam board version. Foam board version, it's what, two and a half? No, it's two sheets and a carbon fiber air shaft. It's, it's really, it's straightforward, very easy. I'm excited. 
I'm excited. <laughs> I'm glad that it worked out too. It, it took a little bit for me to get it to like fly comfortably on both right. those with the jet and that, but I, the perseverance paid off. Um, cause I really enjoyed the, the flights that I did get with it. that were just relaxing and fun. So if you get a chance, I know Chris will be putting those out somewhere. I think he'll be, he'll either be putting them on his servo server and, uh, putting a link or, or something, but just be on the lookout for him. If you were interested in all the reviews that Isheen gave to everybody on the reptile dragon two, you might be able to just build your own for a lot cheaper. So, mm-hmm. um, take a look out. Uh, that, and honestly, that's, what's been keeping me busy for the last two weeks. Very busy as I've made multiple trips to the field to kind of figure out how to get all of these craft out to fly. And it's okay. been fun. So yeah, busy. Um, one thing that I was thinking about while you were talking about that, uh, during, I forget which plan it was, but you were talking about the trim, um, and having to pull it back. With, it's been a while uh, since I had since this conversation occurred, but I was talking with um, Jesse about the the different different transmitters back when I was looking to buy one, and I ended up mm-hmm. with the Radio Master. Um, and some because I know you run OpenTX on yours as well. Yeah, uh, it may be worth um, getting. He had mentioned he's got a switch that he can. Like it's a momentary switch, so you can pull it and hold it. Uh, but it's programmed that when he holds it long enough, that it sets the tr- his trim settings to what the stick inputs currently are. Mm. I'll have to ask him about that because that would be very helpful on maidens. Because mm-hmm. where you, you you get it up in the air and it's flying around, but you're holding sticks in a weird position. Yeah, and it, he can just would, flip a yeah. switch and hold it and let it go, and it'll. It'll set, set it. Set the trims to where your sticks are, yeah. Nice. And then all you got to do is remember to fix the trims when you bring it down. Right. Well, like I said, that's awesome. I'm going to I'm gonna look into that. Um, did we did we get any feedback uh, in the last couple of weeks? Do you know, Joe? Um, I think just the, just the one comment that was in the Discord server. I'll let you, since you actually replied to it. So our comment was from Neil. Uh, if I recall right, he's over across the pond. Mm-hmm. And he said that uh, his comment was, the special guest shows were superb. Uh, I would have listened to another two episodes. Fascinating stuff. Red was an amazing guest. And uh, I replied that I agreed, and I thanked him so much for the feedback. Uh, we really appreciate when you guys, uh, when the listeners, everybody uh, reaches out and lets us know how we're doing, you know. Even if it's something uh, you'd rather see more of or less of, uh, let us know. Um, mm-hmm. you know and we- that that was a very long conversation with Red, and it he was very polite and like very engaged throughout the whole thing. So it was nice. Like it, his time was really appreciated. Yeah, very much. I, I'm seriously, I could talk to him for days probably, but uh, I'm glad that we didn't for everybody else's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, I guess, uh, we have a reminder about our, when this releases, we'll have missed the nearest build night, but the one, there'll be a build night the following Saturday, June 26th, between 11 to two. Eastern standard time. Eastern standard. Yeah. Eastern standard time. Whatever it currently is, but Eastern Eastern time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Weird daylight stuff. Um, Yeah. 
uh, 11 to 2 Eastern time um, here in the States. So if you can, hop, you know, bring your computer over to your uh, build table, build with us for a little while. I'm, I can't, I have no idea what I'll be building by that point. Um, <laughs> it really could be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, as I tend to jump from thing to thing, and I've already got a couple things that inspired me. I know Flight Fest is coming up real soon, um, in about a month almost exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I know I'm going to be looking forward to, okay, what do I need to finish up if I want to bring it to Flight Fest? Let me make sure that it's ready. Right. Um, so I'll be looking through my fleet of things that I may want to bring and make sure if there are certain things that I have them ready. And yeah. So uh, let us say, if you want, reach out to us. Let us know if you're going to Flight Fest. Uh, I know I'm definitely going to be there. I think Joe's trying to figure out if he can make it or not still. So we're going to do that, but we'll talk about it. Um, I'd love it if you come up, if you see us out there, see me out there. um, You know, just say hello. You know, let us know what's going on. Uh, Hopefully I'll catch some interesting stuff while I'm there. And I, I would love if we can do that together. But I know that, you know, life is quirky and weird. And sometimes it just doesn't always work out the way you want. Um, but I'm hoping, yeah, just reach out. Let us know that if you're going to be there and I'll, I'll be on the lookout. Oh, uh, one last thing that I guess I'm, I'm doing in the hobby is I'm cleaning out my hobby room. Okay. Uh, it's been a hot mess for uh, a long time. So I've just kind of, I finished setting up my build table the way I want and I've pulled everything out. So until I figured out how I want it placed, I'll, then I'll bring it back in. Well, good. Um, so I'm eager to get that taken care of before the kids come back so that I have a spot that I can just keep all the planes and I mm-hmm. can stop polluting, polluting the house as some people might call it <laughs> uh, with all the builds that I put together. All right, so uh, getting back into it. So main topic, yeah. Yep. Modern day trainers. Nice. All right. Oh, and uh, excluding helis, we're going to leave that for a different day. Um, Because technically you can have uh, trainer helis for sure. Because you got to learn how to do that some way, right? I guess that's true. I don't know why the first thing that popped into my mind for a trainer heli was a Chinook. And I'm sure those are not, (laughs) (laughs) those are not a trainer. So, okay. This will, this will betray my age. Um, but, um, imagine, um, Tom Selleck's buddy, um, in Magnum PI who flew that little helicopter, the little Huey. Probably one of those. No, (laughs) man. Never watched it. Oh my God. It's amazing. Anyway, so he lived in Hawaii, so there's a lot of island hopping. There's a helicopter mm-hmm. in there. It's basically just that little MASH helicopter. That's also betraying my age. All right, I'll stop. And I'll watch MASH. Okay, so the you know the little all-windshield helicopter that's nothing yeah, but yeah. frame? It's essentially what it is, except there's actually like a little bit of metal, um, you know, uh, body to it, but okay. not much. It's that kind of style. Those are good. As I understand it, those are pretty much trainer helis. Anyway, so I guess the big question is, is, uh, you know, we already talked about like, um, we're going to start talking about like 
when we talk about these modern day trainers, we're going across the whole board. So it's going to be civilian and military. So we're going to, when we kind of talk about the plane, what we found is that a lot of these, some of these, I should say, have started as civilian aircraft and were repurposed for military purposes in some cases. And when you get into the jet age, there really isn't, there is almost no civilian purpose for a jet fighter craft, uh, period. But you do need um, trainer aircraft that allow you to start learning, right? So um, I guess I wanted to talk about what, what happened after World War II, right? Um, basically, how do you protect against aircraft at that point? Well, you're basically, it's anti-aircraft guns, right? And of course, the Navy, Army, and the Air Force um, are your defense against, every country has a branch of these um, in some fashion or another. And that's basically how you protect a country from an invading air, air, air threat, right? Um, and really, so you're going to have anti-aircraft guns in some fashion or another. Um, and then from that, you're going to use, you know, radar and guided missiles when you're kind of really far out. And you're going to have any of the aircraft um, from the carriers. So you're going to have, the carriers are going to have groups of aircraft that basically patrol. So you have the air patrol groups that are way out in the ocean uh, that are kind of patrolling f- that's your outside perimeter and they're going to be relying on radar and, you know, long range guided missiles and things like that to basically address threats as they come up. Right. Mm -hmm. And that'll be, and, and these are with these sorties, these, these groups that go out to patrol, they'll have um, basically AWACS, uh, airborne early warning and control. They're, They're that weird little UFO dish that sits on top of the aircraft Mm-hmm. And that's basically like a portable radar, so it can extend the range of your radar. I'm trying to remember what the name of that plane was, and I used to know it because I was it was it just the AWAC was what that plane was called. It, it, I mean, I think it's what everybody called it, but it it was the AWAC was the thing on top of the actual plane, and the plane oh, wow. was. Um, I'm trying to. It, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I can't remember exactly which plane that was. Um, maybe as we go through some of the list. Um, it was, oh, I knew him. At, I understood him as AWACS, which is a, a different abbreviation for what you got. But it mm-hmm. it was mounted on top of a, uh, a modified Boeing 707. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was one. Right. Because, I mean, think about it. They're very fuel efficient and they can fly long range. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. After you have those groups, then you have your, which includes the combat air patrol. Then you have your surface to air missiles, which um, those are hard mounted. And oftentimes they'll be included in um, naval um, groups. So you'll, they'll be mounted on aircraft carriers and things like that. And for the most part, they're somewhat autonomous, but you'll also have those stationed um, at strategic spots around your country to protect them from invading air. So basically what they do is they detect a threat and they send out a series of missiles that are guided or heat seeking. And they basically then try to destroy the craft that's coming in the threat. Right. Um, 
And then, so your backup to that is then your man portable air defense system, which is basically your shoulder, shoot them and forget them, or your guided uh, shoulder mounted fired things. So you, or, or something very similar, which would be um, these SAMs and missile launchers and things of those natures that might even fire high altitude, long range missiles. Um, And for, for again, for my age people, which is 45 or so, think of spies like us. I saw it. So you know what I'm talking about. So those excellent comedy. Yep. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, but it's doctor, basically doctor. The, those kind of missile doctor, 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 doctor. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, perfect. Anyway, so but but these um, so these are your your portable air defense systems that they're they're you can move them around your country and put them in places as they need, um, and so those are as you're coming in further and further from the perimeter of where you're trying to defend, right? Um, so this is what you, like, these are the systems that aircraft nowadays have to contend with. And of course, you know, back from World War II, it pretty much started with just anti-aircraft guns and the various versions of it. And as they got better and bigger, and then of course you started getting radar, which could actually detect aircraft before they come which I think was already in place. Then they started learning how to build guided missiles. And then with that comes all these other things, right? Um, And now you're protecting against flight envelopes. It used to be, you know, what, 200 knots, I think, or or 300 knots was about the speed. Now you're Mm -hmm. looking at at jet aircraft that are now going almost twice that, right? At the end of World War II, it just started to happen. And but as you get closer and closer, you're, you now you have planes that can go past the speed of sound. Yeah. You're going Mach one, Mach two, Mach three. We we're talking the red. He's talking about aircraft that go Mach seven or Mach nine or some nonsense. What the heck? Yeah. I and mean, for very it, short durations, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> In that short duration, you're covering the entire, the, the entire continent almost. You know? Yeah. It's it's crazy. Anyway, so the the idea is. These air defense systems have to protect against things that could potentially go that fast. So uh, these are the things that modern trainers are trying to train new pilots for, is to get a pilot who's a guy who says, I like to fly, up to speed to actually be able to maneuver an aircraft that has to beat any one of these or all of these air protecting protection systems. Well, right. specifically, you know, military trainers and such. Cause military, even, yeah. Good now, point. now, now I feel bad because you you've gone into the military side of this, and I picked a I civilian did. trainer. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. But I mean, but then there's then you have a civilian tra- trainer. We're like, well, how do you know if you even want to be a pilot in the military? Well, you, you got to learn how to fly, mm-hmm. and if you don't know anything, which is how most people start flying then you've got to have a plane that's forgiving. And we, we've talked about some of this before. Um, but they're really important. They're mm-hmm. important in helping people understand if this is something that's exciting, something that they want to do. And right. most people know they either want to do it or, eh, it's not a big deal. Um, but either way, both systems, both, um, both military and civilian systems, each of these trainers – the, I mean, part of the point of the trainers is to train pilots on the newest, latest, greatest, 
electronic system. And they are ever-changing for the same reasons we just talked about. All of these technologies are evolving and improving. And even our airspace, right? Our airspace used to be you call up the tower and say, hey, I'm coming in kind of deal, right, with your radio or whatever. But nowadays, like, the bigger airports have semi-automated systems. They have HUD displays that show the corridor you're supposed to fly in to approach the the really? airports. Yes, they can. I don't I don't know if many of them do, but it is this is how they're trying to basically streamline getting more planes down and up so that the throughput in any given high uh, high capacity airport increases. What you're doing hmm. is you're, you're starting to clog the skies. You can't land enough planes at any given airport to be able to move the people that need to get moved. Now, this is before COVID, and hopefully it'll be soon. It'll Things will kind of restore. But that's what a lot of the air systems nowadays have been working towards, is to be able to streamline the process of air traffic so that way there are less variables and people can land and take off quicker. And and so with that, you you need the appropriate electronics. And as a pilot, you need to understand how they work and, and practice with them. And the, the best way to do that is, you know, is with these trainers, right? Um, and, I, you know, I continue on with all the different, you know, military things. You got the anti-radiation missiles, which is basically a jamming system. Then you have electronic countermeasures and electronic counter countermeasures, which is, you know, the, the, um, I'm trying to think of like a Bugs Bunny and, and Daffy Duck with a duck season, the rabbit season, duck season, rack, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what countermeasures and counter countermeasures and keep going, you know. I mean, all the way to the point where you're getting like stealth paint, which is literally a paint that absorbs every wavelength thrown at it. Yeah. Which is crazy. And, and that's a way to jam um, countermeasures, right? And of course, it, it, you know, who knows where it'll all go? Um, with any luck, we'll all decide we're all one planet and stop worrying about internal battles and maybe focus outward. I don't know what. Um, you know, years ago, and yeah, I'm getting old enough. I can say that now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had the it was way back in high school. Um, I actually had an opportunity to go to Lockheed. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, and the I don't know if I ever mentioned that before. At least on air um and we got to walk through lockheed uh their production line and see it, it was one of the, the the cargo variants um that were in production at the time the c1 mm-hmm. something c180s or something uh but C-1 also something. Got, <laughs> <laughs> but also got to see the uh the f-22s going out mm-hmm. of line and and as part of that you talk about the rate the radar absorbing paint yeah um they would so this is early in the 22s uh, they would uh, hang the 22s uh, from a dangle wire, basically, and mm-hmm. put them in this big room and bombard it with radar. Yeah, After just it to test it. And, and slowly rotate it just to see how much they were getting off of it. Since you were talking nice. about you know, the, the radar absorbing paint. Yeah. Yeah, it's cr- it's awesome. I mean... Again, and at some point, I think maybe we'll we will go down some of those those paths to explore these in more detail. It'll probably be a while, but this this kind of stuff is what shapes why planes are the way they are, 
right? Mm -hmm. Why is an F-22 basically like a sliver of metal? (laughs) And they're working, right, low profile, and they're working it as hard as they can, designers are, to eliminate doing what the Prandtl wing does, which is eliminating the vertical surfaces, because that's what's reflecting your radar signal. So if you can make a plane that has almost no heat signature and looks like a sliver of nothing, could be a bird, now you're completely invisible and you can, other than visual sight, you're pretty much autonomous, mm-hmm. you know, and not autonomous. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. No, autonomous is uh, unmanned no. almost. Well, you know what I mean? Um, anonymous maybe anon- was what you were going for, but that's not quite right. No, and you, if hopefully if you're listening, you understand where I'm getting at. <laughs> um, anyway, so all of these lead to like the different kinds of trainers, right? And, and we're going to go through a list here. And this is just a, a little bit of a list. We'll have a link to a bigger list that I found. I thought it was pretty good as a comprehensive list from like 1950, basically on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll have some dates to kind of give, because some of these, it kind of jumps around time-wise. But it'll be interesting, because you can see, like there are clear reasons why certain fighters you know, where certain planes were developed, you know what I mean? And why they're trainers like, no, oh, this is trainer just because, you know, you need to know how to fly and fight. Right. Okay. So you need a plane that can do that. Um, uh, or just like you need to know a bunch of, uh, you have to have a plane that's versatile, like the air tractor AT802, which is the crop duster, multi-role aircraft. You can pretty much do anything you want with it. It flies low, slow. You can do acrobatics. It can go fast. You know, as clearly Dusty Crop Hopper told us about, um, <laughs> if if you watch the Planes movies, um, no, but but essentially it's a it's a very high visibility, durable, um, you know, aircraft that can do a ton of different things. It's a multi-role aircraft. Um, it's a great way to train because it's very forgiving. Um, and it allows for different tendencies and you to try a bunch of different things with the same airframe, right? Um, yeah, look at the uh, Aero L-39 Albatross. That's a, a jet aircraft. Um, Sukhoi Su-27 is another one of those in that same kind of era where, you know, you need to train on jets. Jets behave differently. Um, your Your cockpit requirements and of what you're going to be focused on is going to be different than if you're flying a Spitfire or something of a more uh, older vintage. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to skip this one here. We're going to talk about that at the end because I think this is where modern aviation is heading towards. Um, but like the Antonov AN2, it's a biplane. It's great for training people on utility or agriculture uh, purposes. Um, it's a Russian built craft. Antonovs are, uh, they, they build a lot of the really giant bomber craft and things like that. And, you know, we talked about how biplanes were very popular in teaching, um, pilots how to fly and how to do maneuvers and things like that. And if you're going to be like an agricultural spray craft or something like that, much like the tractor, the air tractor, um, you know, you need to fly low. You need to know how to deal with a lot of different situations and be, um, you need to be able to fly over field and cover the whole thing, right? With, with whatever you're dusting. So 
Um, so the biplane isn't entirely gone from, from you know, the world of aviation. Um, <clears throat> another example is the, and I picked this one partly because I've actually designed and built a model, and I have, uh, it's one of those ones that's about 95% all but the landing gear, um, is the Avion IAR99SOIM or SOIM. It's a Romanian, specifically a Romanian air, uh, jet from 1985. Um, it, I mean, it's a traditional jet. It's got um, good jet lines. It's there to train the Romanian Air Force on dogfighting and protecting their borders and things like that. Right. Um, and it's it's a pretty pretty cool looking craft. Um, BAE Hawk. It's a, an advanced trainer light strike aircraft. It's an, another, you know, very versatile, very iconic um, trainer, fighter trainer. You know, uh, that was in 1976. Um, we talked about the Texan, the T6 Texan from Beechcraft. Right. Um, same. And, and honestly, much along the same lines, but more in a civilian two engine capacity is the Beechcraft Bonanza. Um, it's, uh, got some interesting lines on it. We got the, the Skyhawk and the Skylane, which are classics. I mean, classic trainers, um, from Cessna, Cessna 172 and 182, which Joe will get into in a little bit. Um, we have, uh, if you wanted to learn how to do twin engine light utility aircraft, uh, the Diamond DA-42 Twin Star in 2014, um, that's a far more advanced version of a lot of the planes we've kind of talked about. Um, but, you know, and, and they go kind of across, like uh, across the world in, in the sense, like these aren't just American aircraft. You know what I mean? Um, we may be sitting in America now, but a lot of these, you know, the Romania, Russia, um, this, the, um, the Twin Star, I, I'm trying. The next one is um, Chinese. It's Hongdu JL-10 or the L-15 Falcon. It's an advanced jet fighter and light attack aircraft in 2010, so it's only like 10 years old. It's designed to teach pilots what they're going to get into when they do supersonic flight, because That's, it's a different animal. I can't imagine the like if there's a. I don't know if there's a sensation difference when you actually pass threshold. I don't know that there is, but just the knowledge, like that feeling of supersonic, like what what that must be like <laughs> to be in that cockpit. I know, right? I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, I guess we can watch a bunch of videos and hope that that helps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I I think I saw one one time where it was like there, there's really no difference, but I mean, just the knowledge. Anyway, mm -hmm. no, no, just, I'm, just I'm knowing like, that you're there. Sorry, go ahead. I know, right? Like, what? I'm going faster than the speed of sound, except I can't hear myself because <laughs> it's behind me. That's <laughs> not how that works. I know it's not how that works. <laughs> um, I, I also put on the Navmark Tiger Shark. Uh, it's basically a sur surveillance recon aircraft, but it's it's a UAV, so an unmanned aerial aerial vehicle. Um, and there's a whole like set of those. Um, and of course that, that list is growing. Um, if you're going to remotely pilot, you need to train on something. Um, 
let's see, you have the, uh, uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I, I want to say it's Pilates, but it's not. It's Pilates, uh, PC-21 and nice. PC-24. Um, they're uh, Swiss aircraft. So two-seater intermediate flight trainer aircraft in 2008, and then the light passenger jet aircraft. I mean, you, you need to learn how to fly jet aircraft. They, they behave very differently. They, as I was told by a friend who flies commercially, uh, you're flying a bus. So it's going to steer like a bus. It doesn't, it's not super sensitive um, and super responsive. It's going to fly kind of sluggish. So you need to learn how to fly that. It's different. Um, the Gripen or the Griffin by Saab, J-A-S. That is a Swedish fourth-gen fighter. And I'm hoping that when we get to the fighter stuff, which should be very soon, that we start covering what what are these generations, um, you know. Uh, but but basically, as we get more advanced in, I guess, how much the pilot has to actively fly the craft as opposed to just guiding it. Right. Um, I think that's where we start getting from like third gen to fourth gen to fifth gen. But I think the F-22 has such a guidance system where really the pilot isn't worried about flying the craft. He's worried about making sure it goes where it's supposed to. And the computer systems in it are doing a lot of the minutia of the flying to get it to do what he wants it to do, right? He just points and tells the computer where he wants the plane to go, and it does. Hmm. Um, I think, uh, let's see, we talked about the Sukhoi S-27. The moniker is a flanker. And that is in 1985. It's a Soviet super flanker. Um, this is a craft that even to this day, you know, people talk about it. It's, it the, I was watching something, uh, some YouTube video about, um, I guess, engagements by fighter, fighter craft training, you know, trainer exercises, and how they, they grabbed a couple of these Sukhoi, and I don't think it was S20, SU-27, but it was the the aircraft that the Russians put together had so much, some of them had so much power in them that like they didn't have a limit, you know? Whereas like, you know, some of the American aircraft would hit like, okay, that's about as fast as we go, you know, as far as acceleration. Like these things would just kept going faster and faster and faster. It's like, what in the world? Um, so when you're, you know, you got to be, you can't just hop into one of those and go, eh, it should be fine. It's like my, it's like my Cessna back home, you know? Um, and then I think the other one I wanted to add, and it's very much like the TC, uh, T6 Texan is the Yakolov, the, the Yak 52. Um, Yakolov was a uh, manufactured in a lot of the Russian planes that became very prominent and very popular. Again, it's kind of like the, we talked about the T6 Texan last time a bit and it, I mean, if you look at them, they look very similar. Um, and it may be one was actually, in fact, copied from the other. And I'm pretty sure the Russian might have copied the T6 Texan design. It's maybe a cultural bias. I don't know. Um, but, you know, those kinds of planes are still used today to train pilots on maneuvers and uh, different kinds of, of uh, flying styles. Okay. I, and I think um, for me... When I looked at this list, you know, when we looked at the World War II list, it was clear it was the people involved in the war. 
the World War II, which I mean, it was World War, so it's like everybody. But obviously, there were there were major powers, and they had they dominated the list, right? Um, here, uh, the list is all over the place. I mean, mm-hmm. straight out all over the place. Um, in, the India, China, a little bit of Australia, Thailand, Korea. Um, obviously America, Russia, a lot of European countries. I mean, it's really all over the place. Basically every country has an air force and they need to train their people. And so each, each force has a way to defend it. That's unique. And so they need craft that match that. And not even, not even just from a, uh, a military standpoint, even civilian, like, this is a short list of trainers that are out there because there's yeah, just short. tons of them, um, military and civilians. And then once you get into the civilian field, like all the different variants, like it, different things can classify as a trainer just based on its design and how easy it is to fly. So mm-hmm. th- there's a lot more out there. We're just the short list. Yeah, that's a short list. Uh, Joe, you picked a plane that I think is, if you don't know this plane, I think you live under a rock and you don't care about planes. <laughs> so harsh. Um, I know. I know. So, well, pro- prove me wrong then. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, and I didn't, now I feel terrible for picking this one because of your intro to no. this whole topic. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the Cessna 172, the Skyhawk. Um how, well, how could and, we, hold on. How can we finish up trainers and not talk about the Skyhawk? I mean, straight yeah. out, like that would be a sin to not. I know. I know. Um, I just I think you picked good. Yeah. So I, I picked that one because that, that was one that in simulator, I learned to fly like the, the, mm-hmm. the design of it, the concept of it, the, the 172 is iconic of civilian aircraft to me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when I think of a, a civilian plane prop driven trainer, the, the 172 comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and for good reason, uh, as I started doing research into it, like it, it's, there's a good reason they're widely known. They're the most, uh, the most produced plane in the world based on what I've seen. So it, the Cessna 172, uh, was first flown in 1955 um, I think first produced, first sold in 1956, um, and has there have been more of them built than any other aircraft. And as of uh, 2015, there was more than 44,000 built. Now 2015 was the most recent number I could find, but Whoa. more than yeah, and that's still counting because they're still in production, uh, <laughs> to my knowledge. Wow. Uh, yeah, forty four thousand of them is, uh, you know, when I'm thinking, I'm like, man, that's why do I see them everywhere? Forty four thousand doesn't sound like that much. And then I, you know, went and looked up how many F F sixteens were produced. I was like, oh, that's a that's a big yeah. difference in, in number. Yeah, um, right. So the one seventy two, um, what it, it originated as a variant of the one seventy. Uh, the Cessna 170, okay. it was a tail drag. The 170 was a tail dragger. Um, but 
what became the 172 was a 170C uh, variant. Okay. That they put on a what what they're, what what is called uh, tricycle landing gear. So instead of mm-hmm. the tail dragger, you got the nose gear. Um, that was the 170C when they were developing it, and then they later it, it actually initially got uh, its approval as a uh, what certified airplane, whatever the certification process yeah. they have to go through to to produce and manufacture. It was originally done under the 170 uh, C and then was later retyped as the 172 as its own model. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I mean, over the years there have been many, many, many different variants, uh, of this plane. And I've made a, a short list, uh, going through a few of the variants and I'm, I'll be skipping model numbers, uh, or designations just, I kind of, picked and pulled the ones that look like there were major uh major changes made okay. major in features and such so uh through all the different variants there were you know maybe motor tweaks or small changes you know um but the, these were you know sort of the bigger models that appeared to made most changes so the 172 um was the base the base design? It originally had a, uh, a square, uh, a square fin design for the tail fin and the rudder. Okay. Uh, so it was, it was almost square. It, it more stood straight up than had that swept back look. The one seventy two A, which came out in nineteen sixty, introduced the more iconic swept back tail fin and rudder that we're accustomed to see when we think of uh, of the one seventy two. Um, and, uh, the, the 172A introduced, uh, float fittings, um, so that the Cessna could land on water. As far as I can tell, the float fittings, um, I don't know if all of them or just the pictures I was seeing, the float fittings still had wheels on them, so they could be land, uh, the plane could still land on a runway. Um, so instead of a tricycle design at that point, each pontoon of the float fittings, uh, would have a front and back wheel. So I think the front wheels were probably swivel based so that it could still, you know, taxi and turn on land. Mm-hmm. Um, the 172C uh, in 1962, um, I, I pulled this one because it was interesting, introduced an optional autopilot. Um, I don't know a whole lot about that one. Uh, Is it like what, let go of the sticks and walk on the back and make a sandwich? I think it was, <laughs> yeah, I think the autopilot was either, it, it might have been roll control to keep it on a heading. Um, it was probably a one axis uh, autopilot. I don't know. Um, okay. I do want to look a little more into that. That's pretty likely. That way you're you're not actually having to actively push the plane around. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because um, that, that gets tiring. It does. And I mean, there's, there's trim that can be put into a plane too, but. Trim Still. doesn't trim doesn't account for if a if a side gust hits you or something. Um, right. Oh, uh, little side note. I just looked up uh, how many seven thirty sevens, like Boeing seven thirty seven, which is like the backbone of many airlines. Right. Uh-huh. Fifteen. There's under fifteen thousand units produced. Really. Yeah, and most of the other variants, like the seven sixty seven, seven ninety seven, and that kind of stuff, 
they're looking at like a thousand, maybe four thousand in each one of those. Like adding them all up, you're still probably well under half of however many hundred one seventy twos that are produced. Yeah, and that crazy. It's, it it's well known and iconic for a reason, and it was just <laughs> yeah. well received. Like, and I've been in one. Um, they're they're nice. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're just yeah. Um, and, and I guess I should have said on the front end, um, I meant to, they, they do have dihedral in their wings. So that's yeah. another aspect of them. And I should say they're, they're high mount wing. Um, you know, so they've got that aspect of the trainer to them. They're just all around and easy to fly, easy to handle, gentle, uh, plane. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, which makes it easy to learn. Yep. So going back to the 172C, uh, which had the optional autopilot. Again, I, I do kind of mm-hmm. not look into what all that is that was about. But in that model, they also introduced uh, a key starter instead of okay. the pull starter. So I guess uh, the earlier versions, I don't know if they had it inside the cockpit or if they had to open up the engine cow to grab a pull start, but the original uh, motors were pull started. Huh. Um, or they were, you know, get out and pull the prop. Um and also in that C variant, a child seat option was available for the baggage area. Uh, you get a child seat, and I guess they had the mounting points to put a kid's seat in the in the baggage area, which sat behind the back seat. So the the one seventy two had the uh, the two front seats, pilot co pilot, and then yeah. a bench seat in the back for okay. two passengers, and then a uh, there was a baggage a luggage bit. space behind that. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. The 172D in 1963 introduced the, uh, what they're calling the lower rear fuselage, which I think is just where the, the tail, the tail section of fuselage swept down lower, which opened, uh, viewport range, if you will, to be able to put in a rear window. Um, oh, okay. So that's when, that's when you first got the rear window in the 172s. Also, I found interesting, um, with the 172D was introduced the 172D Powermatic, uh, but the Powermatic was supposedly actually a 175 Scarlar, Skylark, um, but it was rebranded uh, as the 172 Powermatic because they were trying to overcome a, rep- a bad reputation of poor engine reliability in the Skylarks. Oh, okay. So they were trying to rebrand. Uh, yeah. So I can make that, but the rebranding failed, and uh, neither the Skylark or the Powermatic ver- uh, variant of one seventy two were produced after that year. Uh, oh, okay. th- those were both dropped. Nineteen sixty five saw the one seventy two F. It introduced electrically operated flaps uh, instead of the older lever operated. Okay. So, um, yeah, you're able to get the electronics in there. Uh, 1969 introduced, uh, brought the K variant, uh, which offered optional 52 gallon wing fuel tanks. Okay, um, so increased uh, fuel capacity and range. Right, and with it, with it saying that they were optional, I guess there's the uh, internal fuel tank in the main fuselage, and then you could get the extra the extra tanks out in the wings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember doing a pre-flight. Uh, years ago when I went in that Cessna and we walked around the plane and I remember the guy, the pilot reaching up and checking 
uh, fuel fuel lines for water, and they ran in the wings. So he probably had yep. that optional kit on there. Um, so in the in my list from uh, from 1969, we're going to jump a number of years to the 172 N. Uh, you mean 19- it wasn't a perfect aircraft then? Oh no, they, they kept going. The 179, uh, sorry, 172 N in 1977 introduced a rudder trim option. Uh, so I guess prior to that, they didn't have a trim option for a rudder and pre-selectable mm-hmm. flaps. Uh, yeah. So with the I, electronic I, slap, uh, electronic fl- electronic driven flaps, you now have preset positions for I guess a 10 degree, 20, 30 degree on the right. flaps. It, yeah, as a matter of fact, the the one I did the um, the test ride, mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember what that's called. I, I know that's not what it's called, but anyway, for, forgive a me ride for the ride along. I guess, um, yeah, I, that model it was a one seventy two, and if I recall right, it it did have the preselectable flap options. Obviously, you could you could choose, but there were definitely places you could just put it right there. And then the last variant on my list that I've got, you know, noted, uh, again, we, we were in 1977 with the end. We're jumping in 1996. Almost the, 20 years later, huh? Yep. Almost with a 172R. Uh, um, it was the first model with factory fitted fuel injected engine. Uh, so factory fitted oh. fuel injection. Okay. Um, and it was a list of other great upgrades on them, uh, but. It looks like the nineteen the the one seventy two R was the first uh, model to include as a standard kit the four point intercom system. Oh, nice! So you could have a conversation with your passengers while you're on a trip, right? And I guess that was a a add on feature that they could get in previous models, you know. But that was the first model to have it, you know, from the factory like that. Okay. Um, and then with yeah, there was so again. There's a lot of other models in there. One model that's not in that list was the O variant. Uh, there wa- there was no O var- there was no O variant because they did not want to have the 172 O be confused as a 1720. So they they skipped sure. the O variant in their yep. designations. It's a pretty good reason. Hmm. Um. So some other models that they did test. Uh, they researched, tested, got designed um, electric and diesel designs. So it was, okay. all, it was electric version and then a diesel that would have burned Jet A fuel, but basically a diesel engine. Okay. Um, but those those never really left R and D. While they did do um, you know test flights and stuff with them, they never mm-hmm. they never hit production status. Right. Um, yeah. Just in case, look. I mean, the price of of gas and I'm this is you know auto fuel right uh has gone in the last what 20 years from uh what a buck 50 to like three or even almost four bucks and back again yeah you know i mean that dramatically changes the viability of some of the other uh engines Mm -hmm. possibilities right so yeah you definitely want to have those in your back pocket just in case you need it well As, as a manufacturer you know what i mean yeah, and there was a time diesel was real cheap because um, mm-hmm. it's more of a byproduct uh, of the main gas production. But now diesel's your most expensive. expensive. Yeah, yeah. Now I remember diesel being what twenty cent cheaper than the cheap gas, and now it's 
yeah most expensive thing on the menu um uh, the golden days <laughs> uh so the 172 is is has been continues to be used in uh military service it does serve as a trainer craft um okay. in, in the air force and the arm i think the army might still use them uh i know there's uh still several in use with the air force and they've i think they've got a couple out at the air force academy out in colorado springs um but the military does have its variant of the 172. Uh, it's the T-41, I'm going to butcher this, Mescalero. Yeah, it looks like um, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so it's still used as a trainer craft for getting getting guys introduced to flight. But uh, yeah. there's also a small fleet of the, uh, the T-41s or the 172s that are being used for patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border. Okay. Um, in that area. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of barren territory over there. Mm -hmm. And the one seventy two is ideal for it. Um, oh, and Good one visibility. thing, I, one thing I forgot to put in my list because um, I was talking to you about it, I didn't come back and put it in my notes. The okay. the there's a so there's a record for uh, longest flight time, uh, continuous, and then I think for like refueled and re uh, recruited, but. The 172, uh, I'm trying to find it here, it was back in 1958 to 1959, two gentlemen, Robert Tim and John Cook, uh, set the world record for uh, flight endurance, uh, refueled flight endurance using the Cessna 172. So these guys took off and flew the Cessna nonstop. They, were allowed, they refueled in flight. Which, how they modify their plane to do that, I don't know. Um, just a, one thing in a list of modifications these guys had to make. Because uh, they re being able to refuel as part of this flight endurance, uh, they kept that plane up in the air for 64 days, 22 hours, what? 19 minutes, and 5 seconds. Oh, my God. Almost 65 days straight. Holy crap. Can you imagine being... Being in a Cessna for two months? That's over two months. I mean, over, right. Yeah. and I can't imagine it for two months, alone over two months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and before and like you, before we got going, like you and I were discussing some of the modifications you'd have to make yeah, to a plane to be, be able to, to do that. But, yeah. Anyway, so. Yeah, you ponder that if you would. <laughs> yeah. You know, think about all the things you like the the different. I mean, think of it. It's like a extended Baja race, but in the sky, you can't land. You can't stop. You just got to keep going. <laughs> you know, like somebody pull up beside you and kind of throw things through your window. I mean, maybe. Yeah, but I mean, these things are cruising fast enough. I mean, their their cruising speed is that is not. I don't think they could. Fly, I don't know how they did it, how they were getting supplies back and forth, unless they just loaded up with all those supplies beforehand, which. It's a lot of water. Um, now, I, you know, I'm wondering if they basically brought somebody up over top of them with a, they dropped a line, you know, and then once they caught the line in their plane, they would ferry things down and then they would clip whatever waste out. And uh, there's got to be something like that going on. I, that's worth looking into because that, that's crazy. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> that's crazy. So I was putting these notes together tonight, so there's awesome. there's gonna be a couple things I'm gonna want to go back and 
and have a look at like how in the world but i know right yeah that's um that's the 172 uh the plane that i came to love um and still do when i see them that's just that's what i think of as a civilian plane yeah well, I picked a Cessna plane as well, and I, that was purely <gasps> by accident. I know. <laughs> well, I picked a military vil- uh, variant, and partly okay. because we'd already talked about it before. I've, I've actually I built a small one of these, tried to get it, actually did get it to fly, but not very well. I've been in the process of actually designing a bigger version of the Cessna T-37 Tweet, or Super Tweet, as it uh, ended up becoming known or the A-37 Dragonfly. Um, There were 618, because we were talking about numbers, there was only 618 of these made, um, but they've definitely made their presence known um, from the Vietnam War era on. Okay. It is an American light attack aircraft that was developed from the the A-37 Dragonfly. it's the attack aircraft developed from the T-37 Tweet, which is uh, basically a, a basic jet trainer that um, Cessna made in the 1960s to 1970s. Now, the Vietnam War um, was 1964, and I, I've got a window to 19, at least it was used in Vietnam War era uh, tasks through 1975. And it basically provided a lot of low, slow air support. Um, so while the jets might come in and scream across the sky, uh, these would come in kind of underneath it and behind them and do a lot of low uh, bombing support runs. Um, from 1972, I think that's actually supposed to be 1970. 1964 to 1970 is the Vietnam War uh, period, I believe. Uh, I might have mistyped that, so sorry. Um, yeah, maybe we can I'm get a listener to correct those with those I know. eras. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, I didn't live through it, so it's not. Even if I did, I I couldn't even tell you when uh, Desert Storm and Desert Shield were exactly. Um, anyway, uh, nineteen. That's that's the best I well, I could tell you better, <laughs> but but ultimately, they're not set in stone in my mind either. Okay, so from after the Vietnam War era, the plane was basically distributed around the globe and purchased from different militaries around the globe as a great jet trainer. Um, the, this plane uh, has side-by-side seating, so it's a kind of wide, kind of squat jet plane. It has two uh, J69 uh, turbine engines uh, that produced uh, 2,400 pounds of force each. Um, in the A37 model, um, and that was the, the basically the the early version. Uh, and after a little while, the military said we want to start putting uh, hard points on this thing and being able to increase capacity of what it can carry, especially in the Vietnam area. Um, mm-hmm. And so they ended up taking this um, this really quality, uh, I guess. Well, that's that's subjective, but the the basic chainer uh, jet trainer, and um, making it more capable uh, in the war arena. Um, so they would basically so to to make the A thirty seven B model, they increased the strength of the wing, 
so it could turn higher Gs. Uh, it went from a 5G capacity to a 6G capacity. Uh, it added three hard points per wing and 500 pound or 1500 pound capacity, um, as well as the they changed the jet engines out for one that produced 15% more thrust. The J85s is the model, uh, and it produced an additional 450 pounds of force uh, of thrust. So um, while it was still slower than most aircraft of the time, its size made it really hard to hit, and it was much slower. So you would, uh, if you were fighting uh, defense against the Air Force, they'd basically be coming in with the jets. The jets would trigger all the anti-aircraft, and I guess the Viet Cong were looking at, uh, they're used to leading for jets. So as the tweets would come in, they would see all of the tracer fire way ahead of them because that's where they were leading, you know, they're mm-hmm. leading the planes to. So they, they would rarely, um, they would see basically the fire before it got to them. You know what I mean? So they were able to get out of the way. Um, well, and, and what, what you're kind of saying is that the, the ground units that were firing up at them were accustomed to faster aircraft. This one was flying slow. So they were shooting way ahead of it. Yeah, because they were expecting it to be a lot faster. Yeah, thank you for clarifying. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And and thank you. I got you. Yeah, I appreciate (laughs) it. Um, And and when we're talking about small, you know, I I don't know how big most jets are. I thought they were, I always think they're bigger, but depending on the jet, they can get pretty small. These planes are 28 feet long um, and 36 feet in wingspan. So they're, and, and the wing surface area. I mean, they're not super wide wings, you know, they're not like a big, uh, panel, you know, they're, they're pretty short. Right. Um, so they don't present uh, a lot of surface area to aim for, uh, no matter which way you're looking at this plane. Uh, they, it flies up to 440 knots, which is 500 miles an hour. And it has a 41, uh, 41,000 foot ceiling, and at about, what, I guess 12,000, they start needing air. So it's an unpressurized cabin. So they actually have oxygen in in the craft separately. So they once they get past 12,000 feet, um, they, they put on a mask to, to be able to breathe. Okay. Uh, the plane has 930 miles range. Uh, part of why they strengthened the wing when they made the B model is so they could add additional fuel capacity. Um, and some of the sorties, instead of, adding missile uh, hard points, they would put fuel, uh, two extra fuel capacities to extend the range to match with uh, what they were accompanying. I wonder if they would drop those excess tanks uh, later in flight, like uh, I think the F-16s can do that. Yeah, I, th- I don't know. Um, I don't know if they would. I, I, it makes sense that they might, you know. Heck, they dropped everything else. Uh, (laughs) i mean if you look at these things they're like uh, fully outfitted they're like bristling uh with missiles either uh they had air-to-air missiles uh for defense as well as uh, again each hard point had three locations for for bomb drops so you're looking at with three of those six so times three let me do math out loud um so like 18 18 spots to drop and then uh, some of that, so basically they'll go, and as they were, uh, they'd be flying so low, 
that as they were focused on making sure that they would drop their bombs on the right spot on the ground, they mm-hmm. would they would not realize how close they were to the ground. Um, and a lot of maintenance crews would find that the bottoms of their craft would have like grass and, and tree leaves and stuff on stuck oh, on the bottom of the planes. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's what they do. They basically go, I guess, parallel with the, the line and they would drop their bombs. They, they come around and then they would follow it up with napalm. I think that was the, the tactic. So as they were doing this kind of double story front, uh, they would be focused on their target. And because they're already low, they're not like a, higher altitude fighter uh they would they would very much be at risk of getting right right down to the ground you know um so i I thought it was pretty interesting uh the last thing that they have oh that was something that they have that this i i wasn't i was surprised to see these are kind of set up like a volkswagen where the cargo space is in the front um and the cargo space it's not very big but it's big enough um and it's basically next to the Gatling gun that they have. Um, this, this has a 3,000 round per minute Gatling gun that shoots out the left side, I think. Goodness. I know, right? And it carries 1,500 rounds. So you got 30 seconds of firing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, the, what uh, a lot of the pilots who operated this uh, during, during the war, they found that it was really, the Gatling really wasn't terribly effective against ground targets. Um, so it, they said it was basically like trying to fire at somebody with a hose. Like as you'd move it, it just wouldn't, it was tough to lead cause you had to, it was straight fire. Like you, you know, it's not like you could shift the Gatling gun to aim right. separately from how you're flying. So uh, point and shoot or fly and shoot isn't really the most effective way to shoot down something. Um, but so, at higher speeds, no, cause the A-10, as far as I know, the A-10 is like a fly and shoot, like issues yeah. going but the a10 flies so much slower yeah yeah it does and i mean this this flies slow as well but <laughs> the a10 that's a separate animal <laughs> i think it's awesome that they can only shoot for so long otherwise they'll come out of the sky because they slow down too much yeah from the recoil it's fantastic anyway um so okay so they were basically there to um to basically do surveillance and do basically the, the bomb strafing runs of the, the, the front lines and kind of come in after a lot of the faster forces um, did their initial run. Um, so after the military service, after the war was over, um, there's a story that the Vietnam basically came in and grabbed, I guess they, they got control of an airbase that had 33 of these things. And so they took them and they used them for their own purpose and then sold them to all the different countries that needed them. And it turns out um, that there's a lot of South American countries that then got a hold of these. Um, they, they got hold of these and then used them in their their wars, uh, specifically in the Salvadorian Air Force uh, during the Salvador uh, Salvadoran Civil War uh, for a, a I mean, there's nothing on what timeline that is. Um, and I think it was around 1983. Uh, and they were used in 1983, that's right, as an anti-narcotic mission um, in most South American countries. So mm. they, I don't know. And so if you look at the list of countries, it's basically Korea, yeah, North and South, 
uh, a couple countries in between, and then like all of the South American countries. Hmm. As a matter of fact, actually, almost all the Americas, but but mostly South America and uh, United States of America is okay. pretty much who has these, and they're still in service today. That's the crazy part. That I mean, they were made in. They stopped production of those in 1975, and they're still in service today. Is it 50 years later? No, it says they're holding up well. Apparently, um, this plane. Uh, if you want to check out livery examples, um, you can go. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link to the papercraft. Remember, I told told you that I designed the plane based on the paper model. Um, he's got a list of probably. I think it's 10 different liveries. So if you're interested in like how to change what a plane looks like, uh, for example, you've got the Colombian air force has like a dragon on the underside. Uh, the Republic of Korea has, it looks like a Thunderbird, like the Thunderbird design on the underside. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Hellenic air force, which is from Greece is kind of a blue with like a, uh, it looks like a mercury or, or some sort of uh, figure on the front. And then you got Portuguese, which is like uh, red with kind of green patches on the wing tops, like bring, uh, green triangle patches on the top. So, I mean, if you look at this list, like it, the liveries, the way they've been painted up are just so varied and very interesting. I find that it's it's almost like the, the shape of this plane lends itself to coming up with something very creative to paint it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you, you look through them, you're like, I mean, some of them are pretty straightforward, you know, camo kind of stuff. Um, and some of them are just very interesting, very iconic. Um, one little feature that this craft, it has a lot of interesting features, but two things I think that I'm going to identify is this plane was incredibly easy to maintain. It was designed with maintenance in mind. It has access panels all over the place. I think, uh, I, I think it was on the order of like 60 or more uh, access points to be able to get to different parts. And they said that the turnaround time on a, on this aircraft was like under two hours, oh, wow. which is very, very short time. So that is one of the, and I think that's part of the reason why it's a big selling point and still being used as a trainer today is that it's easy to maintain and it's easy to keep running. Um, and, and one last little feature, because remember these are little and they're really small jet engines. Um, the back of them, you'll notice these little thrust deflectors. And you think like, well, what, you know, the, the, the actual thrust on the motors is pointed slightly down and slightly outward, mm -hmm. out, outbound, um, outboard. That's what I'm thinking. Um, but they had thrust reducers or thrust deflectors. And the reason why is because jet engines don't spool up quick. So you're not immediately going to get like a ton of thrust. So if you're coming in to land, you can't come in fast, right? Otherwise you'll over, you'll, you'll roll off the end of your runway. So right. you have to slow down airspeed wise, but you need to keep the motors spooled up and, and giving you good thrust. Otherwise, if you need to do another turnaround, you won't be able to. So right. the thrust deflectors reduce the amount of thrust that comes out and, and pushes the plane even though the motors are still pushing out the same amount of thrust. Um, the deflectors reduce how much is actually being pushing, you know, pushing the plane as it lands, it slows down. But if for some reason you have to abort and get back into the air, you can, you can close those deflectors and now you've got your full thrust okay. without having to change the thrust speed on the actual engines. 
Okay. And and not having to wait for a spool up or mm-hmm. for that engine to come back up to speed. Which you, you may not have that opportunity if right. you're in a real pinch. So okay. it, that's an interesting little feature that I, that I haven't seen um, many planes identify. So it's a, it's a neat little plane. R- really interesting. And honestly, the American Air Force still uses it today. They call it a super tweet. And that's the other thing. Uh, it's called a tweet for the purposes. The engines give this high pitch like whine. Like really high pitch, more more so than normal, and so when this thing's coming at you, you kind of you can hear it coming. Cause it's it's, <laughs> it's uh it's it's pretty interesting. Um, if you check out a couple of the videos on this craft, you'll you'll hear and you'll be able to tell like oh that's why they called it a tweet, you know. Um, but yeah, it I found this craft pretty different than most normal uh, trainer planes, so I thought it was worth bringing out. Um, as I like the unusual craft, um, and I'm working on, I should be finishing up plans. I'm hoping to do that later this week uh, and have something that if you wanted to build a super tweet yourself out of foam board, um, you might be able to, uh, reach out on our discord and I'll, I'll be able to hook you up, I guess. Well, there we go. Right, I guess that closes it up. So, uh, Joe, what's on your workbench? Um, I mean, kind of the same stuff. Um, but Really, once once the battery charger gets here, which I'm hoping will be by the weekend, um, in hopefully in time, even for the build party. So build party, I'll probably be uh, getting the electronics and all finalized in the in the Corsair, um, yeah, and then out. I'll either be building a power pod for the Fogey or continuing to uh, to skin the the uh, the Depron wing. Okay. Um, kind of trying to wrap up those those couple projects so i can move on to other exciting things that, cool. are, that are coming up that i've talked about <laughs> okay good yeah 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 i'm excited about that for you um me i'm gonna work it i feel like a broken record but that's only because in the last two weeks i took a left turn and built three different <laughs> three yeah three different models that i wasn't expecting to do when we talked last time right Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I built like a, I'll call it an FT version of the Prandtl wing, which is, um, kind of like a, a score glue rather than pull the paper off and mold version okay. of the Prandtl wing. And I was going to try that out and I've already got it designed and plans. So I'm just going to test to see how well that works. And then I'm going to continue my work on the car plane and the J1000 and um, I know I'm going to be starting to put together the Texan and the Reptile Dragon 2, the actual um, foam model that, you know, the professional model, not the foam board version, mm-hmm. uh, the EPP version. Um, well, if I, if I time it right, um, I'll get the, wing, the Depron wing, the Corsair, and the Fogey all patched up and maiden and flying and all finished yeah. up and we you can you can start your texan and i'll be starting a seven about the same time oh nice that sounds good would be ideal yeah um i know it's a bit of a tall order on my, on my part i just <laughs> you don't can do build it. as fast as you uh no i don't know why but i i guess i just have a i don't know i want to see it come together <laughs> I, there's <laughs> something that i really uh i really enjoy about seeing uh, some 
2D some idea and in an hour of rolling and shaping and gluing, it's all of a sudden a plane that flies. Is yeah. just still fascinating to me. So, uh, let's see. Are there any things we want to mention? Uh, Mind our listeners? Just a reminder that you're planning to do a build party on the 28th. Mm-hmm. Um, I know here you're saying 12 to 2, but I think earlier you said 11 to 2. 11 to 2, yeah. Eastern time. Um, and I know you'll be there. Um, I may not. I I lost some time uh, work-wise over the last week, so I'm yep. probably going to be pulling that Sunday. Sorry, that Saturday to uh, to get caught up. Well, if any of this uh, this talk has got you interested in anything, I know the FT uh, flight test has made uh, Commuter, which is basically the Cessna. I think it's the 172. might have been the 180. But it's, it's basically a Cessna plane. If you're interested in building that, uh, you can look at flight test for the Commuter. Uh, maybe on their community pages uh, if it's not uh, available. But I think it's a kit. Um, if you are interested in anything having to do with the Super Tweet or you know, the A37 Dragonfly, um, I'm going to post a bunch of resource links. And if you want to check out any of these other trainer aircraft, we'll have a link to um, a great resource for you to look up your own trainer craft that inspires you. Go out, build it, fly it, you know, crash it, build it again. Have a good time with it. <laughs> yeah, have a good time. <laughs> Laugh and enjoy the hobby. So hopefully uh, that'll get you what you need. Uh, Joe, why don't you take us away? All right. Well, guys, as always, thank you for tuning in and listening. Um, We always appreciate you guys being with us um, and enjoying the hobby with us. If you have any questions or want to let us know anything going on in your world, feel free to reach out to us. You can email us at aviationrcnoob at gmail.com. Or if you want to message Matthew directly, Matthew at aviationrcnoob.com or me, Joe at aviationrcnoob.com. And uh, we'll be back next time. Mm-hmm. All right. See you next time. your mic <laughs> kind of <laughs> <laughs> screw you mike i never liked you anyway Boo-doo. can you hear me i you there yeah can you hear me yep i can hear you fine what are the russians called nowadays soviets today well yeah just yeah Russians. Yep. Uh, interestingly, uh, from December 4th, 1958 to February 7th, 1959, Robert Tim and John Cook set the world record for refueled flight endurance in a used Cessna 172 registration number, November 9er 172 bravo they took off from mccarran airfield in las vegas nevada and landed back at mccarran airfield after 64 days 22 hours 19 minutes and five seconds in flight the flight was part of a fundraising effort for damon runyon cancer fund isn't that pretty neat
64, almost 65 days in the air. What? Yes, that refueled endurance flight. 60... I, I don't know. You, you named the dates and I wasn't thinking like that's months apart. <laughs> 65 days. In a Cessna? In a Cessna, in the air. Oh, for the love of Pete. Those poor people. <laughs> <laughs> Because, I mean, where are you going to, I'm sure they figured out, like, how you're going to go to the bathroom and yeah, and yeah. kind of fe- get fresh. I mean, I suppose people throw themselves up on the billboard uh, platforms for, like, radio stunts, and they're up there for a while. But, ugh, I can't even imagine what that must have smelled like. They probably had to hose that whole thing down inside. I mean, yeah, so there's, I mean, they. They can get air circulating in there. My concern is more, yeah, like, so there's a back seat to these things. Like you can modify it and mm-hmm. put just a an open bottom toilet in there, just to poop yep. through. Um, <laughs> well, much like the airliners use. I mean, that's kind of what it effectively is. When you flush, that stuff just drops out. Goron Lagan, if you have you seen that? Goron Lagan, the uh, yeah. the drill that appears to heaven. That's <laughs> <Yeah, so, laughs> the whole first half is like you. <laughs> <laughs> it goes downhill from here. Oh yeah. Okay, that's the show for today, guys. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to manga, uh, <laughs> Japanese anime, and manga um, uh, noobs. <laughs>